It can be found on page 1088 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all his people, the faith and love that springs from a hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true word of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You heard it, you heard it from Epaphras, our dear, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me as we begin. God of grace, as we come from all kinds of different backgrounds and places and coming into a room like this, there's always going to be some that have come off of uh, days, a few days of uh, difficulty or pain or um, um, walking along with people perhaps who we've had to see hurt and we, or maybe we've walked along with them and not known what to do. Sometimes that even is what brings us here either that happening in our lives or in the lives of someone else. Others of us maybe have been in a really good place of rest or relaxation or being able to see how you are real in our life. Something has happened, you've answered prayers, and we're thankful. And others of us, you know, all kinds of different places, whether bored or um, just really doubting things that we used to believe or just feeling kind of numb to what uh, seems like other people have an excitement that we've never been able to get a hold of. And so from all these places, um, will you please speak to us now through these words as we enter into a new um, uh, message series from this book of Colossians. May, may it be clear to us that we're all in the same boat in one important way, that we are all more of a mess than we care to admit. And yet... These words over and over again in this book say that you love us and move towards people's people's, uh, frayed lives and fragmented hearts. 
You move towards our messes. In fact, you take the mess on yourself, and you did so through your son on the cross. That needs to come alive for us. And some of us know it, and some of us it has come alive, and others of us just don't really know what that even means. Would you make it come alive? Would you help us in one little way today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Until yesterday, I had no idea that in Phoenix they have something called monsoon season. Phoenix, Arizona, you know, the desert, monsoon season. You know, some, I knew some of you would know this, uh, but I had no idea. We're traveling, and the reason I found out is that it caused uh, our flight, coming back from a Midwestern uh, vacation, it caused us to have to, basically it turned our flight from a four-hour flight to like a nine-hour flight, in where we, we didn't get off the plane at all, and there was really not a lot of food being offered, and we were just getting more and more irritable, and it was getting kind of ugly. And then the, the bright spot for me was this man who was sitting behind me. You know, if you don't know, I have, my wife and I have three children, and then my wife is expecting, so like the other one's two months away, and so an, an airplane isn't entirely comfortable for nine hours, those little seats. So it's just kind of tough uh, doing that. And uh, this person behind us, um, all of a sudden, he starts kind of entertaining my kids as we're sitting in Tucson refueling and not getting to get off the plane and kind of standing around. He just, he, you know, suddenly he's doing origami and teaching them these things. And they, they love origami. They've got sheets for origami in their bags. And he's teaching them that making new things. They're loving it. And he's doing a magic trick. They love magic. Um, what else was he doing? Several, then he starts juggling, you know. They love that. He's juggling the origami, you know. It, it, it was awesome. This guy's just great. He loves kids. He's, got, he's resonating with them. And one of the first things that he did that I noticed was um, when he was starting to, to make eyes with Mabel, who's two and a half, and she's on my lap, um, he started showing her pictures of his own daughters on, on his phone. And in a sense, I don't know if, this would click for you, but as a parent, in a sense, I'm thinking, here's a guy who kind of knows that someone might be thinking, who's this creep making eyes with these little kids over top of air- airplane seats, you know, and trying to get their attention? And so it was sort of like a, a move of just um, authentication, you know? I'm a dad. I know what it's like. I'm here to offer my dad skills to help all of us out. I see you have your hands full and my kids aren't with me. I'm just flying solo. So and it definitely had that effect on me. Like, oh, okay, you know, he's got he's got three daughters of his own, and he you know he loves all this stuff, and they're the same ages, and so and I think he's a great dad, probably. And so the question is to connect with that story. How do you? What's the similar thing? What's the parallel thing in the Christian life? How do you authenticate? You know your your experience of the Christian life. This is something that goes with you from this phase of. Ex- experiencing, just exploring the Christian faith, if you're kind of at the beginning, kind of looking into it for the first time, all the way to if you've been walking the journey for 30, 40, 50 years, the questions kind of keep coming back. How do I know if what I have is real? How do I know, um, how do I know if I have kind of the true type of faith, the thing that really makes it, you know, this is the Christian faith and this is not the Christian faith? Do I maybe have enough of something? How do I know? How do I kind of console myself or authenticate my Christian experience. Well, we're in this uh, letter to the Colossians. It's the, our first day in this series. We're going to have several Sundays on this. And what the Apostle Paul does is he writes this letter to these, this group of Christians that he never, he never met in person. And he actually, this is one of the cities where 
He's writing a letter that he wasn't the one who started the movement of Christianity in that city. So it's a little bit unique that way. Um, he's writing this letter to them. And in the beginning of this Thanksgiving section, it's sort of a standard way of writing in the ancient world. He's following a pattern, but he's, he's tweaking it. He's, he's pumping it full of Christian meaning. And in the Thanksgiving section here, of the beginning of the opening of the letter, he basically lays out a whole bunch of things that help us see exactly the answer to the question I just asked. How do you know that what you have or that what you see is really the Christian faith? Um, to be able to celebrate, because he's actually celebrating the faith that he's heard about in this church. And if you know, I mean, just an aside, it's kind of fun to be going through this letter because some of the other letters, the atrocious things that were happening in these churches that were kind of, I don't know what the word is, disauthenticating, deauthenticating, I mean, big, serious problems and divisions and people having problems with Paul and and he's celebrating a lot of things that are there. And so that's, that's kind of why we're looking at it. And so three of the things, this is packed full of stuff. So I'm just going to, we're going to focus on three things that, that really you can look at and say, okay, this is, the, this is the, Christian, the true Christian faith. And they are the gospel in your life, agape in your life, and gratitude in your life. Gospel, um, agape, and gratitude. And you might, I mean, there's a sense in which this is basics. This is Christianity 101. I hope I make it come alive a little bit. I hope that I, or I hope that you can see ways that it still is something you have to keep reapplying to your faith if you've been on this journey for a long time. Um, so let's look at them. The gospel, first of all. In verse 5 and 6, you see that what Paul is praising that he's seeing and thanking God for that he's seeing in their life relates to the gospel when he says, uh, he's talking about all these things he knows they have, faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about what you have already heard in the true word of the gospel that has come to you. And then he refers to the gospel a little bit more. So the gospel is the thing that all of this life that they have and the hope that they have that springs from the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? In, in the days of when the Christian faith was starting out, gospel as a word in Greek had a, a meaning to it. It had to do with... Um, a king uh, taking over a new land, and the announcement of that act, the announcement of a new ruler being in place, would be, for example, the gospel of Caesar. You know, a new land or a new area is taken over by Caesar, and so the gospel of Caesar would go out, that this new land is now in a, a really going under new leadership. Um, we can really connect with this concept in a sense. We know from politics and the advertising um, you know, stuff is just, we're just going to get hit in the face with it coming up in this campaign season. Um, and and it, what I'm saying is this, is that humans have this universal hope that something on a high level is going to come in and shift uh, to get at all the flaws that we see, right? So in, in, in political campaigns, they're, they're keying in on this and hoping to hit enough of the common flaws that we're all seeing so that we might believe that with them, there's going to be this transformation and this shift. And in a sense, the... You could use the same word. You could say that would be the, the gospel of that new political person that gets you know, elected, in our case, elected. Um, so Paul and the early church, they, they know about this word. They sense it, and they say that is the perfect, that is the ideal, kind of comprehensive, beautiful word to use and to draw the meaning from to talk about what has happened through Jesus. To talk about how... Jesus is this new king uh, with a new kingdom. 
and he's Lord. You know, they would say Jesus is Lord, and that very much paralleled saying Caesar is Lord. So they, they kept tapping into this imagery. It seemed to be the perfect, comprehensive way to talk about what had happened through Jesus. Um, and then there was a very surprising nature to this new gospel, this kingdom, um, this announcement of a new king. What was surprising about it is that, you know, in our minds, the highest imaginable place you could go for a, that shift, you know, the, the broken parts of the world's need, world need to get fixed. Well, the highest place we go is we go politics. We go, you know, a, a political leader, a political king. And so the 12 apostles of Jesus completely, if you know a little bit of the New Testament, they completely expected that Jesus was going to, his, his role was going to end in that kind of a way with a, a military, political kind of takeover of a region. But in the New Testament, the gospel is greater than a great political victory. It's actually a higher level kind of good news, kind of good gospel uh, edict that's going out. It's more transformative, and yet none of the standard tools, none of the standard methods, none of the standard weapons are used to make to, to bring about the change in ruling. And so the method in the Bible that we learn about that, that goes along with this word gospel is God's son is a new king, and he becomes the new king by dying and rising. It's absolutely... A, paradigm shifting nobody's ever heard of such an ending such a way of a of a gospel going forward that through dying mainly that's the strange part that through dying that this gospel would go out but then also that he rose from the dead that's that's unheard of that's that's new and and so the christians kind of saw that what was happening here is that there was a a death happening to the sin. There was a death associated with the, a deeper problem, a deeper flaw, a, a, a comprehensive one that we all experience, a universal thing, sin, human failure, human flaws, human brokenness that's at the root of all other problems. So Jesus, actually, his death connects with that, and his rising connects with a new creation. He has a new body. And suddenly there's this idea that in Christ, you too are a new creation. And the world, he will come again and to, to restore and to make all things new. And his body rising from the tomb was the kind of the first fruits of that. The, the thing that says, yes, it's really going to happen. So, th- so that, those are the methods of this new gospel. It's very different. It's, um, and Jesus' way is very different from the political and military one that says, that points a finger and says, there's the problem. What happens with Jesus is he allows all the fingers to get pointed at him as a way of bringing the healing, as a way of putting an end to all the finger pointing eventually. Very different. So, um, there's new methods. Also, how does it spread? Does it spread? What are the ways that you spread a new, a new, um, a new ruler? How does he spread his reign? Well, by force, right? By sword, by threat. What is the new way in the Christian church that this message really roots and takes hold and becomes authoritative? Something absolutely new. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. This is what is depended on. So that any degree that any of you, I mean, you could apply this to yourself, any degree to which you believe or you hope that somehow Jesus brings the comprehensive change to this world or to your life or to your heart or, or anything, any way, any way in which you hope for that, Christians would say, that's the Holy Spirit. But that's even becoming a possibility in your life. And in this case, as Paul, you know, he's a... 
he's actually the, um, the expert of bringing this gospel good news. He, he's like the messenger of this new kingdom for all the people that were referred to in the Jewish world as Gentiles, you know, the non-Jewish people. He was the one that had this sense of calling. He was the expert at doing this. And we actually see a huge thing of the Holy Spirit in that Paul, and Paul's marveling at it in this text, that despite his expertise in this area, despite his title as the, the apostle to the Gentiles, he is completely, he was completely not needed to start the church in Colossae. In a sense, it's kind of cool to see him marveling and just thanking and being, and being happy that, you know, rather than being like, well, you know, I can't take credit for this, but, you know, just be happy that it had nothing to do with him. It was, it was someone else going there, and the gospel just, in a lot of ways, if you compare this church to other letters written to other churches, you go, this is a really healthy one. You have Paul screwed up in all those other ones, and someone else did a great job over here. You get the picture that Paul, there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit doesn't even need the expert in bringing the gospel to a Gentile town or city. And it's a very healthy church. And he could hear about the health. He could hear that the gospel that I just described, that newness of the gospel, that was very active, very happening in this church of Colossae because he would hear things certainly like this. this and this, is, this goes along with the gospel connecting uh, in people's lives and in a community's lives. He would hear about people having um, really such a reorientation in life that relationships that seemed absolutely essential start to seem a lot less important. And in fact, maybe relationships that didn't seem very important come to the forefront and become very important. This is a kind of switch of the new announcement of a, of a king, of the most comprehensive idea of, of a rule or of a leader that you can think of in your life. If that's starting to take place, then this kind of stuff starts to happen. I mean, Jesus even talked about the last shall be first, the first shall be last. There's a, a reversal, a very strange and interesting reversal that when the gospel takes root. Paul was probably hearing about people, stories about people who, who had addictions or strong ties to particular things that they utilized in a sense in their life to, to sort of numb out from pain or from things in their past that they just didn't want to go there anymore. And Paul was probably hearing about people who now were able to find a way out of that because they had this new king, this healing king in their life who somehow uh, satisfied them in a way that overshadowed all the hurts and the pains before. He probably heard about people who had stories where what some driving force in their life, and we all have these, some driving force in their life just started to lose steam and didn't become important anymore and something else, maybe even the idea of following God or following Christ became this new driving force in their life. Other things began to fade into the distance and those are the kind of stories Paul would heal here, even especially people getting baptized, undergoing this, this um, entrance rite, if you will, to the Christian faith that, sort of, that basically says, um, I don't know, I've heard enough to know that this is a step that I want to be a part of, I think, but... I, you know, and I know God is sort of this new king has been amazing in some way so far, but I don't know what's going to happen after I get wet and after this water goes on me, but apparently it's what you do. And, and he, Paul probably heard stories of people who were at a place where they just said, I can't even, I don't even know why I just feel compelled to undergo this at this point. 
Or maybe I resisted and resisted and resisted and all of a sudden something just happened. I just said, I've got to do it. I don't know why. And you heard stories of the Holy Spirit doing this in people's lives and people, lastly, just people doing the normal things that people do when the gospel takes root is that they, they start to look, surprise, surprise, they start to actually pay attention to teachings of Jesus and even input of other Christians, other Jesus followers in some of their biggest, most important life decisions and in some of their smallest ones. And this begins to, when this kind of stuff begins to happen, you say the gospel is happening. Um, and that's what the Christian faith looks like. It also looks like this word, a strange word that I brought up called agape, agape in your life. Now, um, there were several words in, um, there were several words in Greek, in Greek that dealt with love. Agape means love. A lot of uh, translations translate it love, and you see it actually, um, if I can find my place here. Um, your lo- okay, verse 8, and you see it in verse 5. Um, Paul has heard about their love, but he uses the word agape. There were other words for, for love at the time. Agape was sort of thrown by the wayside. It was a discarded word that wasn't used very much. So whereas with the word gospel, uh, the early Christians were saying, this word is great, it has great meaning, and we're going to draw out that meaning to, to connect and parallel what the good news of Jesus is. Agape over here, they took and said, it has no meaning in it really right now, and we're going to use it and pack new meaning in it and make this like a new, a brand new thing that really defines the Christian faith. Um, and they needed they needed a new word to describe and express what they were starting to see in Jesus, not only Jesus, but his followers, this new kind of love. Basically, if you took one of the other Greek common Greek words for love called storge, which was the, the word for uh, familial love, you know, the love between a father and a son or a mother and a son or a daughter and a father, this family love built in, the kind of love that you say, you know, even if someone's annoying and irritating, there's usually, I know there's all kinds of exceptions, but there's often, usually, a good chance that you kind of just go back to giving someone the benefit of the doubt, welcoming them in, doing things for them you wouldn't do for anyone else. Why? Because they're family, right? So there's a lot of that. We understand that. And what they were seeing in the Christian church was people doing that kind of love to people who weren't family. And that, you know, you, you don't normally see that. That's uncommon. That's really goes against the grain of how we operate, I think, humanly speaking. But that's what they were starting to see. They said, we need a new word for this. We're going to call it agape. And the New Testament is full of this word. Nowhere else was this word used with any kind of regularity. All of a sudden, boom, there's hundreds of references to agape in the New Testament. It's this new kind of love, and Paul uses it here. Um, So one of the questions about agape is how... Did they, how does that happen, right? Like, so how, does, how do you get to the point where, let's say, you're someone who I hardly even know, and maybe you even annoy me a little bit. How do, I, how do we get to the point where suddenly I start acting this way with you? I start, to no advantage of my own, I start treating you with a sort of privilege of a family member. How do you get to that? Well, in verse 8, um, interesting that Paul connects this agape love with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It happens through the Holy Spirit. 
How do you how do you get this? Well, the Holy Spirit helps you sense and feel and know that you now actually, listen close, you now have a familial connection to God that you don't deserve. And that was given to you. You now are, as Jesus put it in Matthew 5, when he talked about loving your enemies. You know, what good is it to love someone who loves you back? You know, this is getting into agape kind of talk. And Jesus says, you do this so that you show that you are children of the Father in heaven. So you have been brought in, if the Christian faith has begun to take root, you've been brought into this familial connection to God, and it's been solidified in your heart through the Holy Spirit. When you have the profound truth that God calls me his child, that God, in a sense, that if you know in your heart, if you, if you really get this, that God leapt over all the barriers that you put up between you and him, that he leapt over all of them chasing you down in order to call you his child. Um, if you know that, um, you know, I had no love for God at the time when he began showing me his love, I wasn't showing him any. In fact, I was running away. If you start to know this, if you start to realize that God is basically saying all the time, my ultimate goal is to call you my favorite, favored child and for, have you, for you to wake up every day knowing that that's true. When you begin to realize that God has that approach towards you, then it cannot help but create some agape, agape in your life. It can't happen without agape resulting. And, and agape then starts to just look like, well, what do you know? But I know this new kind of love that God has had with me. It becomes something I know about. I live in. I'm aware of it. So I start to work over. I start to leap over barriers that other people are putting up with me in order to show them that they're God's child and that we're brother and sister, in a sense. Um, You start to give other people family privileges, people who are hard to love and and not easy. Um, See, I think Paul, Paul knows, he's getting at this, because he knows that fake spirituality abounds. We know this. We know how easy it is to have the show or the superficial and for that to come crumbling down or for that to become exposed as something not real. He knows, Paul actually knows the, the truth that it's basically impossible really to, sh- to tell the difference sometimes between authentic Christian faith and something that maybe is more just a approval seeking or something else. Paul knows all this. And so even he here is showing us a little bit of how does he go about attempting at least to spot the genuine or praising what he thinks is genuine. It's agape. That's what he looks for. It's the mo- because it's the, most, um, it's the most likely connection to true Christianity. If there's agape at work, if there's specific acts of love done not out of your own advantage, in a sense, if you look at it this way, who do you put forward in your life? Human nature Put forward yourself at every turn, really. Putting forward. Who are you putting forward in this action, in that action? Even in what you do for other people. We're almost always trying to turn it around so that we're putting ourselves forward in some way, even if making ourselves feel better, putting ourselves forward in that kind of a way. So do you want to do a, sort of the inward look at yourself? Just ask the question, are there examples in my life of putting forward undeserving people? 
It's just sort of a great check to say, hmm, where am I at? Is there some of this, what Paul is praising here, he has heard of things that make him say, yes, I've heard of your agape in the spirit. Is there, is, are there some things you're seeing? If not, maybe that's just enough of a, of a kind of a awareness, sort of a pause to t- have you turn back to see what God has done for you to make you his child. And lastly, this will be quick. The third thing, so, so we've got uh, the gospel, agape, but also gratitude in your life. Now, Paul knows how quickly and how badly even the best gospel-filled, agape-producing community can deteriorate. He, he knows this. He's been dealing with churches from afar that he started, and he's, the issues in some of these letters are atrocious. He knows how things can fall apart very quickly. Um, so there's this interesting thing that he does, even as he's already praising the amazing stuff that's happening in this church. He's also still praying for their growth, as you see in verses 9 through 12. It's filled with all these things. I can't, I can't really go into them much at all, but he's praying for all these incredible things that he, that he hopes to see in their life, that he wants to see continue to develop. They, they've, got, they've got agape. They've got the gospel. There's been great things reported. He, he's not satisfied. He wants them to focus on um, some other things. And let me just pinpoint one of the last ones, actually the last one in the entire list, in verse 12 when he says, in giving joyful thanks to the Father. And he says, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Um. You know, if I would have been writing this letter, I would have put that part right at the beginning. You know, but I guess Paul knew better. Um, but I don't know if you notice, he's getting back to what we started with, the gospel. The essential actions of Jesus on behalf of people and our world. He's getting he's back right to the gospel. So what is the heart? Notice, he says, giving joyful thanks to the Father. And then he kind of gets into the gospel. God has qualified you. You have an inheritance. He's rescued us. You've been brought into a kingdom from darkness. You now have been brought into a kingdom of light. I mean, this is not just poetic fluff. This is stuff that Paul is excited to express and to say, this is the heart of joyful thanks and a life of giving thanks um, that is a marker of the true Christian faith. Um. In a sense, what Paul knows is that um, he knows how quickly a church can deteriorate, even one that's doing great. But he also knows that a church that has this kind of biblical gratitude at its heart, that, that there's this ongoing gratitude, he knows that with that focus, it's a foundation that won't wash away if it's there. But notice what the gratitude is about. This is the, I mean, this is the, this is the kicker. What, it, what do you tend to be grateful for? If you've ever been praying with other people or you just pray by yourself, what do you say thank you to God for? What do we tend to do? We always do this. We go to the material blessings that we have. We go to health, um, good things that have happened recently. Um, now, those, those are all wonderful things to be thankful for. It's good to acknowledge uh, the things God has blessed you with. But I'll actually, I'm actually going to say that's not the staple diet of thanksgiving and gratitude throughout the Bible. 
What is at the heart of it? What is the staple? The kind of prayers actually say, God, thank you for rescuing me. God, thank you. I am thankful again today that you've brought forgiveness of sins into my life. God, I'm thankful today that I actually, as much as I maybe don't believe it because I see darkness around me, thank you for saying you have brought me into the kingdom of light through what Jesus has done on the cross. Um, I'm not really sure exactly why it's so hard to, to voice that. I don't know if it sometimes just feels a little bit fake or if it, if it just feels perfunctory. If you just say, I'm just not really feeling it. I'm much more excited that I got that bonus at work and you know, it really helped me pay the bills, you know. I mean, those things are legitimate, right? But I mean, I, I'm not really sure why it's so hard, but there's absolutely nothing wrong. Even if it becomes a little stale now and again, to have a regular part of your life of prayer be saying, thank you, God, for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, every day, twice a day, just to say, just to say thank you, God, for the gospel. So Paul, that's what, that's what Paul sees as foundational. He's drawing them to a thanksgiving, a life of gratitude, and he thinks that's going to maintain, that's going to keep things going. So it's the gospel in your life, agape in your life, gratitude in your life. Now, before I pray to close this message, has anybody noticed the thing that I didn't mention that Paul keys on and that he's basically saying it's a verb and he's saying he's doing it? And it's, and it's in here a couple of times and it seems essential to this passage. Any biblical scholars want to like look really smart? Oh, sorry. Um, anybody? Just a guess. Just a guess. Prayer. I don't know if you caught it. So my, what, you, you caught it and you didn't say it? I, 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 I saw you celebrate, so. Leaving me hanging up here, Lori. Um, so, I mean, this is another great point, but it's, I'm just using it to close, is that basically Paul believes deeply in the idea that all those things, that health, that getting the true kind of Christian faith in those things, it happens in the midst of prayer. So let's pray for it to happen in our lives. God of grace, uh, we need so much help to understand you, to understand the basics of the Christian faith. We need so much help for so many different reasons. So will you be that help and will you clear things away? Um, will you help us um, to see uh, so clearly, at least get glimpses once in a while, that we have been brought from darkness to light and that you have come to take our place through Jesus Christ on the cross so that we could walk into your presence as your children every day of our life with confidence. That um, as this passage talks about, you qualified us to share in the inheritance. May you convince us that that astonishing truth is real for each of us. That unlike in the Olympics where we People have to qualify by working hard their whole lives that the whole journey with you starts with you saying, I've already qualified you. Welcome home. Make this real in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.